We're in a profession where people either will die or they won't die. And we can't link all of our results on the patient outcome, unfortunately. We have to be able to ask ourselves, did we do what we were supposed to do? Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. Today's episode is going to be a little different. It's a look back at a major learning event in a firefighter's career. But as you'll hear, the lessons taught weren't necessarily clear or obvious. And years later, the firefighter involved is still trying to sort out all of what she should take from the experience. It's not cut and dried by any means but it's worth hearing about no matter how long you've been a member of the fire service. Returning to Code 3 to tell her story is Casey Corrigan. She's a battalion chief at a department in northwest Pierce County, Washington. She's also an instructor with first due training in Washington State, as well as an adjunct instructor with fire by trade. Casey Corrigan, welcome back to Code 3. Thank you for having me again. It's great to hear from you again. You have a story for us about a medical run that affected your career in an unusual way. I believe it was November 2nd of 2015, seven years ago, uh, dispatched to a high-mechanism motor vehicle accident. I responded from the North Station, and I had to stop and get the rescue on the way. That's where we have all of our extrication tools and such. By the time I got there, they had the patient extricated and getting put into a medic unit. Uh, She was still alive at the time, and it sounds like the extrication went really well. So we ended up having to call airlift. So I rode in the back with one medic, one EMT, and then it was me as, as the third person to go over to the airlift zone. Okay. And what happened? The reason that this impacted my career is because... I saw it a certain way through my eyes and didn't realize that other people saw it a completely different way. I was the lieutenant on the way there. I was trying to help somebody with the, like to guide them through the intubation process. So I was feeling, you know, like a, like a teacher, like a guide. How long had you been a lieutenant at this point? I believe two years. So you weren't fresh into the position. You were you had some experience behind you. That's correct. All right. So I, I was I was making sure to project calm. And so I, that's, I mean, that's how I pictured how things were going. They did get her successfully intubated. And we got her into the back of the helicopter. And it was that moment where everyone just <sighs> lets out this, this sigh. Like, okay, we did everything we could. Like, we, we went balls to the wall the whole time for this, for this lady. And it was just this collective sigh of relief from everybody there to just, okay, we did it, we're done. And then moments later, the door to the helicopter opens, and one of the flight nurses says, she coded. There were quite a few of us there at, at this point. The chief of the department was there. 
I think probably everyone from the ship was there. There were a lot of units there. And we all kind of looked at each other like, wait, she coded. Okay, she's a trauma code. We don't really, we don't work these. But it, it's dealt, I don't know, it felt like time slowed down a little bit. Like a couple of us looked at each other and waited for someone to say something. So I tried to guide the medic and say, hey, give the hospital a call. And it, it, I don't know, it felt like it took a really long time. And eventually I said, are you going to call the hospital or am I? So he went and called the hospital and we were told that we were transporting the patient, which was strange for us because we, we don't generally transport trauma codes, especially with our, our distance from the hospital. You load her into the aircraft. They were about to take off. Then they didn't because she coded. Is that right? That's correct. Then they decided that in order to transport her and work on her at the same time, you'd have to use the ground ambulance because there wasn't room in the aircraft. I'm not sure why they don't transport CPR calls. I don't know if it's manpower intensive or if there's not room. I just know they don't. So that kind of kicked everybody into high gear and we were re-engaged at that point. Got her back into the back of the medic unit and took off for the hospital. And we even took the, the flight crew with us. So we, we worked the CPR the whole time and got her to the hospital. And it was, you know, the adrenaline's back up again. And it was, it was just such, such an unusual circumstance that we were transporting her. And we had never transported with the flight crew before. So the medic called the hospital back and talked to the doctor. Because um, the doctor had told us to go to the trauma hospital but the trauma hospital was probably 45 minutes away from us. And we always transported the, a CPR call to the closest hospital. So we were pretty confused about that. I was trying to get like more information, but it was, it's that, that game of telephone where, you know, I'm sitting on the bench seat. I'm trying to get information, but I'm not the one on the phone. And it was a little bit ambiguous as to the reasoning. So I had him give me the phone and I told the doctor, we're doing CPR in progress. We're coming to your facility. We'll be there in 20 minutes for some such and hung up, which at the time, we all thought that, that was the right decision to transport CPR to the closest hospital. Right. You don't want to be doing CPR for any longer than you absolutely have to. Right. So we ended up taking her there and the doctor was mad, which is fair. I was pretty rude to him on the phone or terse, I guess you could say, blunt. But we didn't have a lot of time. We, I mean, we're focused on this person. And we've been told to transport the person, which was, again, very strange. And so it was a, it was a weird predicament to be in. Uh, so we said, we're coming there, hung up, and just continued to work her the rest of the way there. And here I am still, like, thinking that I'm projecting some sort of calm confidence or some such. So we get there, and... She goes into, the, into one of the trauma rooms, and I remember somebody coming out of the room saying, they've got a pulse. And it was this weird feeling in my stomach, like, oh, my God. Okay. So we actually, actually did something here. Then they lost the pulse again. And so we're, you know, we're milling around in the at bay at the hospital, gathering ourselves and calming down and such. And then someone comes outside and says, they think that she was pregnant. It was that moment that I just got, it's hard to describe, like the sickest feeling in the pit of my stomach, because for some reason that hit me in a way that I thought, did I do this? Like, is this something that I did wrong? Because I told the doctor that we were coming there. And it, it scared me, but it, it felt sick because 
motor vehicle accidents where people die are the hardest call for me anyway, because it's so sudden and could happen to anyone. And those always stick with me, the smells. And then I, I just, I don't like those calls. And so this one having like amped everything up multiple times and then the emotional roller coaster of, okay, they got a pulse. Okay. They lost a pulse. Also, they think that she was pregnant and knowing that her family had no idea that she was even there, but was going to find out pretty soon that she was gone. It just, I don't know. It hits you. It hits you in the stomach. It makes you sick after that call. And I, I still, I don't know. I struggle understanding a lot of it to this day. And maybe it was just everybody's way of coping with it. But I found out that, that there's a lot of frustration with me on that call. We had an officer meeting shortly thereafter that, I think a few days later, and the chief said at the meeting that when I said that about, um, about are you going to call the hospital or am I, he said, that's the first time he ever saw me act like a lieutenant. And I thought, well, okay, then I must be doing something right here. It, it's, it's always been kind of a weird place to be in uh, as far as being like understanding my place in the fire service. I'm the first, the first female that was here, the first female professional firefighter, first female officer. And so trying to find my place, like effective communication versus being perceived in a certain way. It's, it's always been a bit of a mystery. And so I allow that to make me question myself. So he says, this is the first time I've seen her act like a lieutenant. And I'm thinking, all right, I feel proud. Like, okay, good. I did this right. But then I started noticing that there's just more and more tension on our shift. People seem really frustrated with me. And I didn't really understand what was going on. It just like got worse and worse. Till eventually, the assistant chief called a meeting with our whole shift. And then I found out at the time that it was, that the meeting was happening, that it was so people could vent their frustrations with me on that call. And I... Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were totally blindsided by that. Like, I knew that there were frustrations and that people were, you know, kind of cold to me or not willing to speak with me, but I didn't, I didn't know why. So I was pretty blindsided by that because now I'm sitting in a room in a literal circle where everybody's telling me what I've done wrong. And it's like, man, that, that just compounds when one questions themselves. I gave orders and it ended up, we ended up losing her and her baby. It was such a weird time because it felt like every interaction after that was someone being angry with me and me not being able to explain, wait, but I thought this, or, you know, explain my side. And I certainly don't, I'm not trying to turn this into a, a poor me story at all, but it, the level to which it impacted my career I know that my brain works a little bit differently. I'm on the spectrum. And so sometimes when I think that I'm expressing something, it doesn't come off the way that I, that I intend it. And so it always surprises me when that happens. And honestly, it hurts my feelings because I know that my heart's good. Like, I, you know, I've got a, I'm a really, really good person. Uh, but then to know that I've offended someone or hurt someone when that's not in my heart, I mean, that always... That always crushes me and it always feels really sad. So after this meeting, one of the medics that was there actually said one of the most like game changer things to me. He didn't know it at the time, but we were standing out back and I'm like, hey man, 
I need to know how you and I can work through this. And he said, well, sometimes you look at me like you think that I should be doing something that I'm not doing. And I don't know how to handle that, which was, it was such a game changer for me because I didn't realize that at that point that that was, that my perception of what was happening was so different than what was received. I mean, what a gift that was for him to be brave enough to say that to me because such a huge time of self-reflection to try to understand how that works. But it was pretty long. It was a long process after that. Unfortunately, that whole call ended up being a bit of a tool, if you will, or a chip or a convenience or something. The, the whole like backroom conversations or you know pulling me into a room to, to tell me that, well, so-and-so says that we can use this to demote you. And, you know, we're, these, these other people are trying to get you demoted because of this call. And I'm still trying to understand what the heck is going on. What was the, the basis for them to say that? What, what did you do or not do that they really found so offensive that they would demote you if they could or if they thought about it? I still ponder this, honestly, because there was a whole a whole investigation done when I had to sit in a room with a bunch of chiefs telling me the results of this investigation. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. They were telling me what the results of their investigation was, uh, were. What were their results? Well, according to them, because they had talked with the, with the county, like the EMS, the office, to consult with them. And what they had told me was that I didn't follow the protocol and that I had brought risk to the department because of that. But I didn't know what it was specifically that I had done wrong still. I do know that when my conversation with the doctor was, was played on tape, I mean, I sounded pretty rude and pretty short with him. I, I, I get that. That's, to me, collateral damage. If we're working on somebody's life right then, I'm not going to stay on the phone for a long time. I'm going to get done what needs to get done. Right. But yeah, I was told that I hadn't followed the protocol. I was contacted, though, by, by somebody in the EMS office who wanted to make sure that I knew before Christmas that I'm not in trouble and that I did follow the protocol. And so I was, I was confused as to the, I guess, the level of incongruity between the investigation and then what the EMS office told me. But I remember just the feeling of relief I remember exactly where I was standing when the person from the EMS office called me and said, I figured you might not hear from your department. I can tell that there's an issue there. And I wanted to make sure you knew before Christmas, you followed the protocol and everything is fine. Just like oh, the weight that came off, man, that really did help Christmas. It was, it was so kind. Um, and then after the relief is the confusion, because that's when you start wondering, like, what, I don't know, you question yourself, you question your skills, you question yourself as a person, you question your intellect, like, what is it about me that's so wrong? Like, I don't know, it, it cuts even deeper than that. Given the fact that you had a hard time determining what they were upset about, how were you able to take a lesson or lessons from it? That's a hard one um, because I did, well, okay. I did learn very specifically what in the protocol was supposed to be done or was done. 
So that was a good thing uh, to be able to review that. I did make sure that I, I let it in when they said, you can't talk to people on the phone that way. Absolutely. I agree. I will absolutely take that forward. I could have handled it differently. As far as acting within the protocol for the EMS office I had. So I, it's, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to understand what the lesson is that I was being taught. I don't understand. It's, I mean, it's been seven years and I, I want to, I always want to be better from all experiences. At this point, what have you been able to take from it other than the idea that you should be more careful in your phone communications? I mean, are there any other specifics or are you still left to wonder? Well, specifically, personally, just the gift that that, that paramedic gave me by saying, basically, what you're putting out there is not what you think you're putting out there. That I come across a certain way that's not favorable. That to me was was such a huge gift to have that reflection. And it wasn't any kind of official anything, but just that he was brave enough to say that and cared enough to say that. That was a, a huge deal. Another thing that I take from it, because I know what I went through, I know what it felt, and I, I know that it, it changed me as a person for, well, probably still to this day, but I was not me for I don't know how long after that. But what it felt like to just to think I was doing a good job, but then when something came into question, the assumption of guilt, as opposed to asking questions to try to find out the information so we can learn, that's not something I ever want to do to anybody. So that's something huge that I took from that also, is that if, there, if somebody makes a decision on a call, big or small, but if they call the ball, I will always support them. I will always have an open mind, and I'll always assume that they came from a place of a good heart. I don't want people to be in an environment where they just are afraid that if they mess up, they're going to get alienated or yelled at or whatever. Just that type of learning environment, it's, it just, it's not okay. It's not okay to treat people that way. So that's something I've taken with, with me ever since. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, it's been seven years, and I'm still mad, and I still don't really understand all that happened, but I've managed to convince myself by telling myself this story over and over again for seven years, I've convinced myself that I, that I was right. Do you still think that it would have turned out with the same, the same blame game if your patient had lived? I don't think so, no. No, I think we would have all high-fived. We're in a profession where people either will die or they won't die. And we can't link all of our results on the patient outcome, unfortunately. We have to be able to, to mourn the person, but separate ourselves and separate that emotional part. We have to be able to ask ourselves, did we do what we were supposed to do? That way we don't take away that bad taste like, well, that person died, therefore we must have done it wrong. If we did right, we did right, but we have to be able to, to look at that objectively instead of tying the result, the end result, to our success as a department. So there has to be an acknowledgement that you can do everything right and still lose the patient. Correct. Yep, we have to have objective measurements because we're, I mean, we're humans and different things from different calls sit with us differently, you know, things that 
stick out to one person may not stick out to the other or hit, you know, hit somebody's heart a certain way, but we're all emotional and we all want good outcomes. We have to be so conscious of making sure that we are able to separate the end result from did we do our job and what did I learn that I can use next time? There has to be good that comes from it. It sounds like there's some good that's come from it, but it sounds like it's been a tough battle to get to the good. It has been. I am thankful for for the parts of it that, that tell me what how I don't want to treat people and how I want to support people. It still feels unfair, though, because like here I am talking about my experience during this call and me, me, me. I just I find myself wondering if it's all a distraction so that I don't have to mourn her and her baby. It's a great story, and it's definitely um, an example of how things can go sideways, whether it be during the call or in the aftermath. Casey Corrigan, thanks very much for telling the story on Code 3. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, there it is. I'd like to thank Casey for being willing to tell her story. And if you have comments, you can leave them on our website. Code3podcast.com slash lesson. If you'd like to share your story of a run where you learned the most important lesson of your career so far, let me know. The email is scott at code3podcast.com. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.